The Old Testament lesson for this morning is taken from Job chapter 32, verses 1 through 17. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. So Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzite, said, I am young in years and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought, age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a man, the breath of the Almighty, that gives him understanding. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me, I too will tell you what I know. I waited while you spoke, I listened to your reasoning. While you were searching for words, I gave you my full attention. But not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. Do not say, we have found wisdom. Let God refute him, not man. But Job has not marshaled his words against me, and I will not answer him with your arguments. They are dismayed and have no more to say. Words have failed them. Must I wait now that they are silent, now that they stand there with no reply? I too will have my say. I will tell what I know. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Please help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. <clears throat> the New Testament lesson is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. <clears throat> we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, 
expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Shall we pray? Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. One of the ways in which God demonstrates his graciousness to us is when he restrains our own inherent sinfulness. And sometimes that happens when God reveals to us the error of our ways so that we repent before we actually go too far. And that is the case in Job chapters 31 through 32, when Job's speech comes to an end and Elihu's speech now begins. In his closing response to his friend's Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, Job passionately defended his personal honor, and despite the allegations and innuendos made by his friends that Job had sinned, which to their mind explains why it is that Job is suffering so horribly, Job knows that he has done nothing wrong to bring down God's covenant curses upon him. And so Job demands to be vindicated before God. And while Job is not sinned as Satan has predicted that he would, Satan believed that Job would blame God for his suffering and then curse God to his face, Job now comes perilously close to the edge of self-righteousness. And while Job does not blame God for his circumstances in the course of seeking his own vindication, Job has become defiant. His speech has become careless. And he's lost all this perspective that he should have had on his situation and suffering. But because he is gracious toward Job, and even though Job cannot yet see it, God will humble Job before he goes any farther. Job has successfully passed his ordeal, and God will soon restore him and vindicate his good name. Things will work out in the end because God is good and God always keeps his promises. But first, Job will be humbled. He will be humbled because God is being gracious with his righteous servant. And we return this morning to our series on Job, and we move into the concluding section of this book when Job gets the very thing he's been demanding, an audience with God. Yes, Job will be vindicated in the end. Yes, he will get an answer to his questions about the nature of suffering, especially the suffering of the righteous. It may not be the answer he wants or the answer he expects, but it'll be an answer nonetheless. But before the happy ending to the story comes about, God will appear to Job in the midst of the whirlwind, bringing this amazing story to a close. 
Job will learn that true righteousness and true wisdom is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God incarnate. But before God speaks to Job, a forerunner must come and prepare the way for the Lord. Now at the end of Job's final discourse, Job uttered these words recorded in chapter 31, verses 35 through 37. Job speaking, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. Like a prince, I would approach him. Now, Job has been the recipient of suffering through this divinely ordained trial by ordeal. Job has endured the loss of everything, all of his possessions, all of his children, even his good reputation. What is more, Job has received terrible counsel from his friends, which inflicted more pain, perhaps, than did the sores on his body. And as the debate has unfolded from chapters 4 all the way through chapter 31, Job's friends cannot deal with the obvious, that the righteous do indeed suffer, and that the unrighteous do indeed often prosper. In fact, by the time the debate is over, Job has gone from being the one receiving terrible theological counsel to becoming the teacher of those who seek true wisdom. And as we've seen, Job has silenced all of his friends. But even though he's right, the whole matter has embittered him. And although he seeks true wisdom from God, Job has become careless. He's lost sight of the most important thing that God's ways are always right and true, and that Job's final vindication can only take place once Job is reminded of God's perfect righteousness. Now, having graduated from that difficult school of suffering and sensing that what is truly needed to bridge the gap between the mystery of suffering and true wisdom, Job sees that what we need is a divine mediator. And yet, Job is still a sinner. As such, he's about to cross the line in terms of his relationship with God. Job has fulfilled the specific terms of this trial by ordeal. He's not blamed God for his troubles after his possessions and his family been taken from him. Job is a justified sinner made right before God. His blameless and upright light reflects his faith in the God of the promise. But even though he's been justified from sin's guilt and even though he's been liberated from sin's power, Job remains a sinner. Now it's one thing for Job to demand that God vindicate him from the charges that he sinned so as to provoke God's wrath when in fact he's not. But it's another thing to demand that Yahweh treat him like a prince because of what he's just endured. Job is now on the verge of becoming utterly self-righteous and demanding in his dealings with God. And God in His grace is about to humble Job before he crosses the line and says and does that thing he ought not to say or do. Now enter Elihu. The way in which God restrains Job's sin is quite remarkable in its own right as seen in the very lengthy speech of a certain Elihu who has apparently overheard this entire dialogue between Job and his three friends, and who can restrain himself no more. Now, like Job and his three friends, Elihu does not have the benefit of having read the prologue to the book. So, Elihu knows nothing about the true nature of Job's trial by ordeal. 
He doesn't have all the information to assess Job's situation correctly. But Elihu does see that God has been gracious to Job despite Job's harsh words about feeling abandoned like God, by God. And Elihu's speech, which is very wordy and repetitive, serves to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord in the whirlwind to speak to Job. Four times in what follows we will read that Elihu was angry with all four participants. In Elihu's estimation, Job and his friends are quite wide of the mark when it comes to the matter of Job's suffering. Job is erred on the side of self-justification. He's lost all sight of God's righteous dealings with his creatures, even when they suffer. But Job's friends also err by condemning Job personally and accusing him of having sinned because of their faulty understanding of this principle of divine retribution that God must punish all sin and their application of that principle to Joel is nothing short of cruel they have not been able to offer any resolution whatsoever to the mystery of the suffering of the righteous and Job as we've seen has effectively silenced all of them now in terms of the literary structure of the book Elihu gives us the perspective of a pious believer on what has just happened between Job and his friends. But more importantly, Elihu's speech sets the stage for the climax of the book, and that is when the Lord himself speaks in chapters 38 through 39, when we get God's perspective on the mystery of suffering. Now, keeping that in mind as we proceed, we now turn to the speech of Elihu beginning in Job chapter 32, and you We'll want to take out your Bibles and turn to the 32nd chapter of the book of Job. After a long argument, the four debaters have run out of steam. The debate has come to an end, and so we read in verse 1 of Job 32, So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Now how on earth can you argue with someone who thinks they're right and who refuses to be swayed by anything else that is said? And so in verse 2, we are introduced to Elihu. But Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. Now Elihu's problem with Job is that Job is not nearly worried about God's honor as he is about his own. And that last speech in which Job referred to himself as a prince who deserves to be treated as such by Yahweh clearly provokes this young man to enter the fray. But Elihu's anger is not only directed at Job, it is also directed at his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. In verse 3 we read, Elihu was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now the main point that Job offered in his defense throughout this entire dialogue has gone unchallenged. The righteous do suffer in this life while the wicked do indeed prosper. And the erroneous application of this principle of divine retribution on the part of Job's friends that God must punish the wicked in such a way that they always live miserable lives and that they always die young clearly doesn't sit well with Elihu. For one thing, it's self-evidently not true. Coupled with the fact that Job's friends are forced to accuse Job of having sinned so as to validate their point and their actions were shameful. And they did nothing whatsoever to further this whole discussion of divine justice and the mystery of suffering. It's no wonder that Job wouldn't budge. There's also a reason as to why Elihu has waited so long to speak. 
Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. Now in the ancient world, age was associated with wisdom. Maybe there is some advantage to being 50 after all. So Elihu was duly bound to keep his thoughts to himself until he was asked to speak by his elders. But with the dialogue at a standstill, nothing whatsoever resolved, we read in verse 6. So Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzzite, said, I am young in years, and you are old. That's why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. But once having dared to speak, Elihu is going to have his say in full measure. He's going to speak, and then keep on speaking, and then keep on speaking. And his speech begins in verse 7. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a man, the breath of the Almighty, that gives him understanding. Now Elihu understands that age and life experience may indeed be one source of wisdom, but true wisdom ultimately comes from God, which Elihu understands to come in the form of this spirit of life that God breathes into a man. And while Elihu correctly points out that wisdom, true wisdom, must come from God, he does not yet understand the role of the Holy Spirit and the self-revelation of God in his word, which is the true and final source of all wisdom. Now, this is a point that Paul will make in his first letter to the church in Corinth when he wrote about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, as we saw in our New Testament lesson, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. And Listen to what Paul says about the Holy Spirit and contrast that with what Elihu is seeking. To the Corinthians, Paul writes, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden, even from Elihu, even from Job and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. And skipping a few verses, Paul goes on to say, We've not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit expressing, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments, and he has the wisdom of God to make these judgments. He makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And while Paul is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and has the mind of Christ and therefore possesses true wisdom about spiritual things, Elihu, way back at this early stage of redemptive history, only knows that such wisdom is needed. He knows that true wisdom must come from God and that the performances he's just witnessed on the part of these three old men clearly indicate that despite their age and their, their preeminent social standing, they don't possess the kind of wisdom that Elihu sees as obviously needed. 
unless Elihu has correctly diagnosed the problem. Men and women need wisdom from God to understand the mysteries of suffering, to understand the purposes of God. And human experience and human opinions are a very poor substitute for that. But Elihu can't yet fully understand that such wisdom will come later on through God's self-revelation in his own word. The point that will become very clear soon enough is when God speaks to Job from the midst of the whirlwind. And when God speaks, true wisdom is revealed. And so Elihu's quest then for wisdom frames all that follows in verses 9 through 22. Now when Elihu takes up this quest in earnest, we read, It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me. I too will tell you what I know. I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning. While you were searching for words, I gave you my full attention. But not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. Do not say, we found wisdom, let God refute him, not man. But Job has not marshaled his words against me, and I will not answer him with your arguments. They are dismayed and have no more to say. Words have failed them. Must I wait now that they're silent, now that they stand there with no reply? I too will have my say. I too will tell what I know. For I am full of words, something he's about to demonstrate. I am full of words, and the spirit within me compels me. Inside I am like a bottled up wine, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak and find relief. I must open my lips and reply. I will show partiality to no one, nor will I flatter any man. For if I were skilled in flattery, my maker would soon take me away. Now, Having made his case to be heard by Job and the older men, Elihu now addresses his comments specifically to Job. And so in the first seven verses of Job 33, Elihu now extends a challenge to Job. But now, Job, listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. I'm about to open my mouth. My words are on the tip of my tongue. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me then if you can. Prepare yourself and confront me. I am just like you before God. I too have been taken from clay. No fear of me should alarm you, nor should my hand be heavy upon you. Now you know if you've been with us from the beginning of this dialogue, repeatedly Job has demanded a trial before God, but then complained that if he got a trial, God would just overwhelm him. And so Elihu now calls Job's bluff. Let Job argue his case with another mere mortal. Let Job respond to Elihu's arguments. In effect, what Elihu's saying is, okay, Job, you want a trial? I'll give you a trial. In verses 8 through 11, Elihu then does his best to summarize Job's main point. But you have said in my hearing, I heard the very words. I am pure and without sin. I am clean and free from guilt. Yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. Yes, Job is innocent in the sense that he hasn't sinned as his friends have accused him. But Job is still a sinner. 
a justified sinner, but a sinner nonetheless. And in the process of protesting his innocence and demanding vindication, Job's righteous anger and his indignation, not necessarily wrong in themselves, have become conceit, which according to one writer is incredibly bald and arrogant as seen in Job's final words. You know, it's one thing to defend your conduct when you've been wronged. It's another thing to demand your own rights, especially when as a sinner, Job has only those rights that God has graciously given to him. And Elihu now points that out. And thus in verses 12 through 30, Elihu takes direct issue with Job, rebuking Job for not taking a sufficient account of the need to defend God's honor and not his own. What I tell you in this, you are not right, for God is greater than man. Why do you complain to him that he answers none of man's words? Now, not only does Elihu acknowledge that there's a need for divine revelation, he begins to explain as to why the righteous suffer, and his explanation is very different from that of Job's three friends. For God does speak now, now one way, now another, though man may not perceive it. In a dream... In a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn man from wrongdoing and keep him from pride, to preserve his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Or a man may be chastened on a bed of pain and with constant distress in his bones, so that his very being finds food repulsive and his soul loathes the choicest meal. His flesh wastes away to nothing, and his bones once hidden now stick out. His soul draw nearest to the pit, and his life to the messengers of death. Now, even while people live under the sentence of death because of human sin, God does not abandon them. God is being gracious to people by using extraordinary means to deliver them from the pit, even when they're in the midst of suffering and despair. There are times when God chastens his people as a means of delivering them. Says Elihu, yet if there's an angel on his side as a mediator, one out of a thousand to tell a man what is right for him, to be gracious to him and say, spare him from going down to the pit. I found a ransom for him. Then his flesh is renewed like a child. It is restored as in the days of his youth. He prays to God and finds favor with him. He sees God's face and shouts for joy. He's restored by God to his righteous state. Then he comes to men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, but I did not get what I deserved. He redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, so I will live to enjoy the light. God does all these things to a man, twice, even three times, to turn him back from the pit, that the light of life may shine on him. Now, as Elihu sees it, one reason why the righteous suffers is because this is one of God's ways to chasten his servants, so as to rescue those from living in the shadow of death. Now, if you remember the story, you know that Eliphaz raised this exact same point with chastening. But Eliphaz believed that the degree of chastening was in direct proportion to the degree of someone's sin. And since Job was suffering so greatly, Eliphaz was net forced to assume, well, look how great Job's sin must be because look at the degree of his suffering. Now, Elihu, on the other hand, saw that suffering and chastisement could be and were often acts of God's grace. 
for God chastens his own, which means that suffering can be a sign of God's favor. According to Elihu, God chastens those he loves as a means of drawing them back to himself, especially when they've wandered off and come near to the pit, which is destruction. And thus Elihu can correctly point out that there is no automatic relationship between the degree of someone's suffering and the degree of someone's sinfulness. There is no such relationship. This also explains why it is that the suffering of the righteous seems to us so arbitrary. Because we don't always know what God's purposes are and why some are chastened and why others are not. One thing Elihu has done, he's not answered all the questions, but one thing he has done, he's succeeded in taking the sting out of the suffering of the righteous and the mystery of the prosperity of the unrighteous. And so in verses 31 through 33, Elihu turns right around and applies this directly to Job. Pay attention, Job, and listen to me. Be silent and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak up, for I want you to be cleared. But if not, then listen to me. Be silent. I will teach you wisdom. Those are pretty harsh words from a young buck to an old man. And we can fill in the gap and assume that Job is both blessed by what Elihu has to say, and yet given Job's silence, Job must have become aware that many of the things that he has said in his defense were uttered in self-righteousness and that he did not acknowledge that even in the midst of his suffering, God had been gracious to him. And Job is probably relieved to hear Elihu's point, and yet at the same time he's convicted of his sin, and he can't say anything. Now since the next part of Elihu's speech found in Job 34 is repetitive, we skip down to verses 10 through 28, where Elihu addresses the subject of God's righteousness. Now since Job has been insisting that he's righteous, Job, how about considering the fact that God is righteous as well? And that will put Job's perspective, Job's situation, as well as the false understanding of God's justice in their proper perspective. Let's put God's righteousness first. And so in verse 10, Elihu asked the debaters, So listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. He repays a man for what he's done. He brings upon him what his conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. You guys are right. God will punish all sin, but he'll do so in his own time and in his own way. Why? Because he's sovereign. He's God. Who appointed him over the earth? Who put him in charge of the whole world? If were his intention and he would draw his spirit and breath, all mankind would perish together and man would return to the dust. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Can he who hates justice govern? Will you condemn the just and mighty one? Is he not the one who says to kings, you are worthless? And to nobles, you are wicked? Who shows no partiality to princes and does not favor the rich over the poor? For they are all the work of his hands. They die in an instant, in the middle of the night. The people are shaken and they pass away. The mighty are removed without human hand. His eyes are on the ways of men. He sees their every step. There is no dark place, no deep shadow where evildoers can hide. God has no need to examine men further, that they should come before him for judgment. Without inquiry, he shatters the mighty and sets up others in their place. 
because he takes note of their deeds. He overthrows them in the night and they are crushed. He punishes them for their wickedness where everyone can see them because they all turn from following him and had no regard for any of his ways. They caused the cry of the poor to come before him so that he heard the cry of the needy. Look, God gives all life. God judges with perfect righteousness. God alone knows all the facts. He does nothing capriciously. He does nothing improperly. And Job needs to consider this matter very carefully, Elihu says, since Job claims to believe this, as do his friends. Now to even question God's goodness is folly. In verse 29, Elihu asks, But if he remains silent, who can condemn him? If he hides his face, who can see him? Yet he's over man and nation alike to keep a godless man from ruling, from laying snares for the people. Suppose a man says to God, I am guilty but will offend no more. Teach me what I cannot see. If I've done wrong, I'll not do it again. Should God then reward you on your terms when you refuse to repent? You must decide, not I. So tell me what you know. Men of understanding declare. Wise men who hear me say to me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words lack insight. Oh, that Job might be tested to the utmost for answering like a wicked man. To his sin he adds rebellion. Scornfully he claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. And notice in the face of all of this, what does Job say? Nothing. Job remains silent. He doesn't dare reply. He realizes that he may have said too much, that he may have overstated his case. His words have come very, very close to sounding like the angry words of a pagan. And the opening words of verse 35, Elihu continues to speak to Job, asking him to think about his charge that God has not vindicated him. And then Elihu said, Do you think this is just? You say, I will be cleared by God. Yet you ask him, what profit is this to me? And what do I gain by not sinning? I would like to reply to you and your friends with you. Look up at the heavens and see, gaze at the clouds so high above you. If you sin, how does that affect him? If your sins are many, what does that do to him? If you're righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects only a man like yourself, and your righteousness only the sons of men. Men cry out under a load of oppression. They plead for relief from the arm of the powerful. But nobody says, where is God our maker? Who gives songs in the night? Who teaches more to us than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the air? He does not answer when men cry out because of the arrogance of, of the wicked. Indeed, God does not listen to their empty pleas. The Almighty pays no attention to it. How much less then will he listen when you say that you do not see him, that your case is before him and that you must wait for him, and further, that his anger never punishes and he doesn't take the least notice of wickedness. So Job opens his mouth with empty talk. Without knowledge, he multiplies his words. Job's problem isn't that God is indifferent to his people. The problem is that his people are indifferent to him. They do not seek God merely because of who He is. Rather, they only turn to God in times of trial when they need something, when they want something. And so with these words, Elihu now summons Job back to his original words uttered when his trial began. 
Oh, the Lord gave and the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Elihu has grabbed Job and pulled him right back to that fundamental point. Yes, Job has suffered much, but he needs to be careful and not allow himself to be carried away by self-righteousness and to do anything else is to do the very thing Job does not want to do. It's to abandon the quest for true wisdom. And so in chapters 36 through 37, Elihu now returns to that theme of the suffering of the righteous, reminding Job that God is gracious to us even when we suffer. In verses 5 and following, Elihu declares, God is mighty but does not despise man. He's mighty and firm in his purpose. He does not keep the wicked alive but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. And here's this great line. He enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. But if men are bound in chains, held fast by the cords of affliction, he tells them what they've done, that they've sinned arrogantly. He makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent of their evil. If they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. Now, in the very dim light of the early stages of redemptive history before the coming of Jesus Christ, Elihu believes that the righteous suffer not because they've committed some particular sin, but because the Lord is correcting them or teaching them or restraining them given their inherent sinfulness. God owes them nothing, but he graciously gives them life. And what is more, God has promised on his covenant oath, God has promised to reward all of the graduates of the school of suffering in the end. And what does he promise them? that they will be exalted on high, that they will be enthroned with kings. But in verse 13, Elihu now discusses how God's sovereignty is seen by unbelievers. The godless and hard harbor resentment, even when he fetters them. They do not cry for help. They die in their youth among male prostitutes of the shrines. But for believers, it is different. Those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. He is wooing you from the laws of distress to a spacious place free from restriction, to the comfort of your table laden with choice food. This first theme of a messianic banquet yet to come, it's a pointer to the marriage supper of Christ the Lamb. Job needs to see how he's become embittered and proud and how now he sounds just like one of those unbelievers to whom Elihu has referred but now you're laden with the judgment due the wicked. Judgment and justice have taken hold of you. Well, the speech quickly comes to an end because having considered the greatness of God's purposes throughout chapters 36 and 37, Elihu now is just moved simply to praise God for all his goodness. Seen throughout the glories of creation, we go from a lament now to almost a psalm. God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed his ways for him or said to him, You've done wrong. Remember to extol his work, which men have praised in song. All mankind has seen it. Men gaze on it from afar. How great is God beyond our understanding. The number of his years is past finding out. He draws up the drops of water, which distill his rain in the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture, and abundant showers fall on mankind. 
Who can understand how He spreads out the clouds? How He thunders from His pavilion? See how He scatters His lightning about Him, bathing the depths of the sea. This is the way He governs the nation and provides food in abundance. And what's amazing about all of this is that Elihu has no idea that he's not only speaking as a worshiper of Yahweh, but also as a prophet. Elihu has no idea that he's about to hear the very thing he's been describing through his words of praise, the voice of God. And without knowing it, he has prepared the way of the Lord to come and speak to his people. And so in chapter 37, continuing, Elihu goes on with his praise of Yahweh without any idea of what is about to occur. At this my heart pounds and leaps from its place. Listen! Listen to the roar of his voice, to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the ends of the earth. And that comes the sound of a roar. He thunders with his majestic voice. When his voice resounds, he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. And continuing this glorious theme of God's praise, we come to verses 20 through 24 at the end of this discourse and keeping all of this in mind about what Elihu is desiring. Should he be told that I want to speak? Would any man ask to be swallowed up? No man can look at the sun, bright as it is in the skies, after the wind has swept them clean. Out of the north he comes in golden splendor. God comes in awesome majesty. The Almighty is beyond our reach, exalted in power. His justice and great righteousness he does not oppress. Therefore men revere him, for he does not have regard for all the wise in heart. And with that, Elihu's speech comes to an end. He's directed Job right back to where he has started with a gracious and sovereign God. Elihu has prepared the way for the coming of the Lord. And indeed, the very next words spoken in Job 38 are, And the Lord answered Job from the storm. Everybody's had their say. Everybody's spoken. Job, Bildad, Elihu, Zophar, Oh, sounds like heart medication. All of them have had their say. And now the Lord will come and speak, and the whole earth will be silent. Here is the wisdom that all have been seeking. For the suffering and the obedience of Job points us ahead to the doing and dying of the man of sorrows, the greater Job, the Lord Jesus who is the wisdom of God incarnate. In Him and in Him alone, we find all that we need, including the resolution to the mystery of suffering and the purposes of God. Beloved, the Lord answered Job and spoke to him from the whirlwind. Amen.